Now, there's something to stories where everyone expects one of the main characters to act a certain way, and they don't. It, it often happens when um, maybe the protagonist, the sort of good character of the story, has been wrong throughout the whole storyline, and you're expecting them in this culminating moment to finally get their vengeance, to finally get their justice for the wrongs that they have experienced in the whole story, and then they don't do it. Some of our greatest movies, like some of the most well-known movies, follow that plot point, like The Lion King, right? Simba finally has this moment where he finally can conquer Scar, finally destroy Scar, who has killed his father, destroyed his whole... Sorry if I ruined the movie for anybody. <laughs> killed his father, destroyed... Um, this is, a, yeah, whatever, a spoiler alert. If you haven't seen The Lion King yet, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> But uh, he finally has this moment to enact his revenge, and he actually offers mercy in that moment. Same thing in Braveheart. William Wallace is deeply wronged by Robert the Bruce, who has betrayed him, and yet William Wallace, in that moment, offers forgiveness instead of returning with anger or vengeance. In Les Mis, Jean Valjean has a moment to finally enact um, uh, retribution towards Javert, who has been chasing him the whole storyline. And Jean Valjean lets him run free instead. There's all these stories, all these incredible things, like half the superhero movies are like this. And, and incredible moments, incredible themes of redemption and forgiveness, but in unexpected ways, in ways that the main character can, in that moment, still be just if they were to, to actually punish the, the person who had wronged them, yet offered mercy. And today's text, although on the surface may not seem totally about this, I would argue there's a lot of layers going on in the story that we encounter today, which is not uncommon in Matthew as we go. And so we have been kind of walking through, and even these last few chapters, Jesus comes with this sort of kingdom announcement that the kingdom of God has drawn near. He's claiming in a lot of ways, and I think Matthew is too, claiming the story of God is finding fulfillment in who this Jesus is. Jesus spends a few chapters teaching about sort of the transformation of the heart that, that his people uh, should have. And we go on to see Jesus, who's compassionate to a leper who uh, would have been treated completely as an outsider by the law. We see him uh, um, heal a Roman centurion, the, the oppressors and the enemies to Israel at this point in time. He calms the seas like only Yahweh does in the Old Testament, and yet he's, uh, he, he manages um, by authority to do so, and then goes to this crowd uh, of a bunch of pagans on the other side of the sea and drives out demons. He's the only one with authority to do that. And we will see concepts of authority, of Son of Man, of Jesus' divinity, carry over into these stories. I don't think Matthew is being haphazard by putting all these things together. So let's deal with the setup. Verse 1, getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So where are we headed back to? When we hear his own city, what is the city that seems to be home hub for Jesus? Capernaum, yes. So we cross back over from Scapolis. We're kind of at the northeast or northwest shore of Galilee in Capernaum. Matthew does uh, quite a bit of truncated storytelling, actually, here, all three... Uh, Synoptic Gospels, as they're called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, tell this story, which is not totally common that uh, all three Gospel writers uh, tell all the stories, uh, but this one is told by all three. Mark and Luke actually include a lot more details than Matthew, which is actually also kind of rare, but um, uh, so in both those stories, just to give you a little bit more context, 
Jesus is in the homes. Uh, Jesus goes back and is teaching in houses and homes. So um, here's uh, probably a, a best representation of some of uh, first century housing. Um, they tend to live in insulas. Uh, insulas are um, kind of multi-family dwellings. So when it speaks of a household, it's usually uh, there was a house that the father had, and we have couple pictures, house that the father had. Um, and then as a son might get married, they would build another house and they would share the courtyard. They would share all the responsibilities as a collective family. Um, and so insulas were pretty common. So Jesus is likely in some sort of household. Maybe it's Peter's. Uh, we're not totally sure which insula uh, he might've been connected to, but it's likely teaching in one of these buildings. Um, and so uh, with the collection of things or um, uh, in ha- some of how these houses are built, um, you can probably fit a, a decent crowd inside. Um, maybe, maybe at max like 100 people, but um, you, you can get a crowd in a few of these buildings. And so Jesus might be teaching uh, to a decent crowd at this point. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't know um, what sort of paralysis, whether it's quad or para, um, but once again, the other gospel writers tell definitely more details here. Uh, so uh, the friends actually bring the paralytic and the crowds are too big. They're, they can't seem to be able to get near Jesus. And so they go on top of the roof, they dig it out, all that stuff. So um, Matthew doesn't include it, so I'm not going to spend much time on it itself, but just to give you the image of how this story might have taken place uh, in reality. And what happens? What does Jesus notice? What does it say? You know, this is their faith, right? Well, what's weird about that? <laughs> Whose faith does he not comment on? The par- paralytic. We, we know nothing. Actually, the paralytic has no lines in any of, those, any of the gospel writers. Um, it doesn't have any dialogue. It doesn't say anything in the storyline. But he notices their faith. It actually says he sees their faith. Now, um, does it say Jesus knows internally their faith and what they're thinking? He's able to perceive their internal thoughts? No. It says he sees their faith, which I always found an interesting line. In some ways, however we define faith, there has to be a definition that can include this statement that Jesus can see their faith. In the Western world, we tend to think, well, we never see someone's faith. Faith is like what they believe on the inside. But I think what's, what's here, and at least presented here, is at least a connection between the two. For instance, if I were to go hiking and I get across like, there's this covered, or not covered bridge, a hanging bridge leading across this kind of chasm down to a valley. I could sit there and go, yes, I trust I put my faith that this hanging bridge will do its job and hold me up as I cross to the other side. Now, if I then decide to go climb down into the the valley, cross the little river, and climb all the way back up, would anybody look on and go, clearly you had faith that that bridge could hold you? No one, right? By by the very action, we we would deceive ourselves or like um, misrepresent ourselves to say, I have faith in this bridge, but I'm just still not going to cross it. No, but if I were to cross it, I would be saying, look, he had faith that, he, that the bridge could hold him, and the bridge was designed to do what the bridge was designed to do. Like, it, it did what it was designed to do. And everybody else would be able to see that that's exactly, I had faith in the bridge's ability to do so. That's why I would argue James makes statements like, faith without works is dead faith. Like, it's great to say that you believe these things, but if, 
they're not backed up with actual change of, of behavior and attitude, then, then it's, it's in some ways dead. And these friends, who don't seem to be there for themselves, we don't get a sense that they're asking about themselves, but for the sake of the love of this paralytic man, bring him there and seem to believe that Jesus is able to do something with this man in his presence. And so, yes, there's an act of faith. There's a, there's, a, there's a motion that Jesus is able to see in these individuals. And he says to the paralytic, take heart, my son. And the language there is like a child. It's only used for children. Take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Now, what's weird about this line? Right? We should ask, like, why, are these, why is this happening? What, what's weird about this line? Right. Like... If you were a paralytic man being put in front of this guy who rumors are having that he can heal you, what are you thinking right now in this moment? It's like, cool, Jesus, but I still can't walk, right? He hasn't done the thing that I think people, you would have expected Jesus to do here. But it's not what Jesus says first. Now, he will go on and heal the man's legs. We know that. But I would argue it's still not the main point of this whole section, And Jesus, yes, hear me, I'm going to have to clarify this. Jesus definitely wants to heal people. There's plenty of stories. He's done it time and time again. But there's also times where he leaves the crowd in the midst of healings. Because healings can be problematic. Like, as we read scripture, we should feel a little bit of problem. Because what happens the moment that Jesus heals one paralytic, and you have a brother who is also paralyzed, right? You would be like, well, then Jesus, you should go heal my brother too, right? That would be the expectation. It's Jesus, why don't you heal all the things? If you're able to heal these things, why don't you heal all the things? And so there's some problematic with it. So um, the first is that it's problematic because what about everybody else? And the second, it also assumes that healing our problems is what God and Jesus is most concerned about. That doesn't seem to be the task. And the reason a rabbi, because we have plenty of stories actually of rabbis healing and using them as object lessons, I would argue Jesus does the same thing. We will see this time and time again in Matthew, that, that Jesus does these healings partly because it's able to teach a greater point. And that feels um, haphazard or it feels um, possibly callous that Jesus uses people as props. But at the same time, Jesus is ushering a new creation. He doesn't do it all at once. And in these moments, he's able to teach. And we see plenty of stories where there seem to be a whole lot of crowds that do get healing. And it's sort of like an afterthought. But we really slow down when Jesus has a greater point to teach. And that's what we're going to encounter today. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blasphemy. Um, Mark will fill in the gaps for those of us who are non-Jews to say who can forgive sins but God alone. Matthew assumes his audience would know this fact. Um, And so now if you're living in Jesus' day, how do you know you are forgiven for some wrongs that you have done? Like what is the process? Like if you committed a sin, let's say you stole a donkey from your neighbor. What is the process? Yeah. Okay. Great. Let's, let's walk through this. So first is like an actual contrite heart. So Psalm 32, against you and you alone, or whatever, there's some contriteness that should happen. Like, I messed up. I stole this donkey. I either got caught or I've come around to confess it. Um, I, I've, I've screwed up. Some representation. Step one. Step two, then you got to go down to Jerusalem. 
you got to head down to the big old temple that was built down in the city. Um, just for pictures and scale, uh, here's uh, Jerusalem in the first century as retold in a model that's about half the size of a football field. Uh, it's at the Israel Museum. It's really fascinating how big this thing is. Old city Jerusalem, and there's the Temple Mount right smack dab right in the middle, this huge, huge complex right in the middle. And so uh, here's a zoomed-in picture of the Temple Mount. And so you would have to make your way from Galilee. So say you stole a donkey in Galilee. Uh, you would have to come down from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. You would have to go to this temple. And when you made your way down, you can either choose to bring your own sheep or goat or whatever uh, sacrifice that the law says for your stolen goods. Uh, you would have to come down uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, you don't have to bring one if you want to pay uh, for one. Uh, the Solomon's portico, which is on the far side there, uh, was where all the tables would be set up. You can exchange uh, some money for a sheep or a goat or whatever you needed in that moment. You would then wait in a very long line of hundreds of people to get into uh, the inner part of um, where the, the building is, sort of the inside of that giant courtyard. And you would wait there. There's little golden doors. They would open up for each person. Wait in the long line. You would eventually go inside. So this is a very public thing. Like if you have wronged someone, it's a very public thing to go through the work of forgiveness and to know that God has forgiven you of your sin. You go inside, the priest by midday is probably covered in blood and all this stuff. And you would go inside. The priest would uh, talk to you about what you've done. You'd had a, a, this back and forth with them. The priest would know, here's exactly what you would need to do. Uh, you would need to offer this sheep or this goat, whatever. It's like a giant butcher shop. And they would come to the altar, uh, the priests uh, would, would kill the animal, the blood would pour out, you'd have to watch all this. They would take the blood, they'd put it on certain things, and you'd watch this animal die. And it would be a reminder to you, this sort of symbol, that your sin has brought more pollution, more ruin to the world. That's just what our sin does, that we are contributing to all the issues. And this animal will die on your behalf, it will get burnt up, and atonement is made. Sin is covered, and the priests would say to you, your sins are forgiven. You can now go. That's how it works. Now hear me, if you're an Israelite, this is not thought of very legalistically. It's actually thought of like a tremendous sense of grace. That you're not living in the limbo of, am I good or am I not? What do I do with my sin? But that you knew the process of actual understanding God's forgiveness for you, and you would go and do it. And so it was quite a drawn-out process for God's people. Now, Jesus is up in Capernaum with this man. And this man who would have been, uh, by the oral law, unclean, he wouldn't even be able to enter the temple itself. And Jesus looks on him and pronounces exactly what the priest would announce at the temple. He says, you are right with God. Your sins are forgiven. Has this man made any sacrifice? In Jerusalem, particularly. No. There's no dead animals, nothing like this. So, this would be a shock to everyone listening that Jesus would say this. How real and how concrete of a scandal this actually is that Jesus is saying. And Jesus would have seemed so third party to the situation as well. It's like having neighbors who are like fighting over maybe a, like a dog pooping in their yard. And one's offended and one's mad about it and one's, one, one was wrong and one is mad about it. And you just walking up going, it's okay, everything's worked out. Be like, who are you to even say this? Like, what, what authority do you have to actually arbitrate what's going on here? It's, it's unique, but Jesus comes into the situation where this man's paralytic, there's something between him and God, at least by the oral law, and yet he says something. 
And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And when he rose, uh, then he rose and went home. Now, this won't be the first time I hint at this in Matthew, um, but uh, I think it's helpful to start from a starting point of thinking that Jesus doesn't operate with God goggles all the time. Because at some point, um, I think sometimes we, we over-ascribe Jesus tapping into his divinity. Um, but to start from Jesus' humanity. Now, if you are any Joe Schmo watching this moment where Jesus just said this thing, what else would you be thinking? Knowing the scribes and the Pharisees would not be happy about it. Like, I, I would have been a spectator just as much as Jesus would of going, I'm sure these guys are not happy about this. And so um, he, he knows their thoughts. He knows what they're, they're, they're thinking. And he says, uh, why do you think such evil in your heart? And he says, now, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. To say you are right with God or to transform their bodies. Which is easier? It's almost a trick question because I've heard sermons go both ways. I would argue, because like, you can camp out at Marta Station, I mean, maybe some dude is there even this morning, and shout at people saying, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, and there's no, there's no way to validate, like anybody could do that, there's no way to validate, there's no way to confirm that, you can shout it all, you can say it all you want, but there's no set, like, understand, there's no website you go to to be like, is that true, it's, there's no confirmation but if you were to go to say someone, all right, stand up and walk, like there, there has to be like a moment, a literal moment of validation of that thing. It actually is easier just to say, your sins are forgiven, actually than to say, now get up and walk, and that thing actually take place in that moment. And I think that's what Jesus does. It's like, look, okay, you want to know that I have authority, let me showcase the authority in this moment. I can't prove to you that your sins are forgiven, but I can prove that I have authority right now with the harder thing, which is getting this paralytic man to stand up and walk. And he does so. So what does authority say about the forgiveness issue? Like that Jesus has authority. That's what he's driving home. He's trying to make a comparison to the two. And he says, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Which once again is a, a bit of a weird line. And the Son of Man is an interesting term. We got it the first time, uh, just the last story, and now uh, we get it again. And by the first century, uh, there was actually a fair amount of debate about what the Son of Man meant. Uh, you have books like Ezekiel that use the term Son of Man. Uh, and in Ezekiel, it simply means like human. Uh, Ezekiel himself, God's like, you are a Son of Man. He's actually trying to drive home, Ezekiel, you're just a human. You need to know that you are just a human, that you're nothing unique. And there's moments in the Gospels where Jesus, I would argue, uses the term Son of Man in that way, to go, I am a human. I need you to understand that I am a human like you. But there's also another book where the Son of Man pops up quite uh, interestingly, which is, anybody know their Old Testament? Yeah, Daniel. Now, um, depending on what scholars you want to believe, uh, I tend to be in the camp that I think Daniel is probably the last book really to come together in the Old Testament. Um, and I, Daniel himself existed long before, but I think the final 
bringing together of the book uh, was probably one of the last books of, of the Old Testament. And so I think it's still pretty fresh uh, on the minds of first century people. And there were tons and tons of people uh, debating it and, and being involved uh, in conversations about the book. It was popular in Jesus' time. And Daniel says there's going to be this one like the Son of Man who comes on the clouds, who's before the Ancient of Days and um, um, rules from there, or ultimately brings about justice from there. A moment of setting things right. Now, in the Pharisaic and rabbinic worlds, they looked at the history of the people, and they go, look, when we were in Babylon, we, we got why we were there. Like, we had screwed up, we had, um, we had all sorts of idolatry, all sorts of injustice from our leaders, all this kind of stuff. We ended up in Babylon, and we understood why we were there. But now the, the Pharisaic and rabbinic leaders are all seeking to just be as obedient as possible. That's why they added all the rules to the law. That's why they're, they've got all these things set up. And they're like, we are going to be as obedient as we can. We're going to study Torah, we're going to know it, and we're going to try to be as obedient and do the right things as we can. But yet they were still ruled by the Greeks and then the Romans. And so there was always the question in this crowd of going, all right, why, why is this happening? Like, we are being obedient, and yet we are still experiencing injustice from the outside, from these other groups. And the scribes and Pharisees actually tended to go to this Daniel passage and go, okay, who is the Son of Man? Because in Hebrew, what is Son of Man? How do you, how do you say, I don't know, we're not Hebrew scholars, but you might know this one. How do you say Son of Man? Ben Adam. Look at that. Good job. Yeah, Ben Adam, Son of Man. Now... Ben, ben Adam should sound like Ben Adam, like son of Adam, Ben Adam. Now, is there somebody else in Scripture who sought to do the right thing and yet experienced injustice? Who was the first person to do that? Well, I'm sure Adam sought to do the right thing, but right after Adam is who? Abel, right? He brought the right offering to God, didn't seem to do anything wrong, he had experienced injustice from Cain who killed him. Great, putting all the pieces together. Now, at some point, there started to be thoughts that this son of man, when he comes back, when, when that Daniel prophecy is fulfilled, it'll be like, like Abel. That all, these, all of us who are seeking to do right, and yet Rome and Greeks are all destroying things, when, when the Son of Man, when this able-like character finally comes back, whose blood has been crying for vengeance since page four, when, when that finally happens, then, then we will finally experience our, um, our vindication. Then we will finally experience justice. This is what the Messiah would do. And what does Jesus actually say? That you would know that the Son of Man has authority to do What? Forgive sins. Forgive sins. And it's fascinating. There are even modern rabbis who look back at Jesus and go, Jesus is the only person in history who dared to say that when Abel comes back and looks at his brother, he will forgive him and not seek vengeance. And all these leaders, I would argue, who are wanting justice, who are wanting punishment, who are wanting all these things, because the scribes have got to be part of that crowd who are saying, Rome is terrible, all these things are going on, and Jesus is coming up and goes, you know what the Son of Man is going to be about? It's going to be about forgiveness, because that's what God is actually up to. And so, Jesus comes. And one like the Son of Man has come to bring forgiveness and restoration. And the paralytic, I would argue, is a bit of a prop, no offense to him, but a prop to teach this bigger lesson. 
And how does it end? Well, he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So they were ephobathed, this awestruck, fearful, but yet um, marveled. And what is particular about this last sentence? They glorified God and what? They glorified God and who had what? Given authority to who? To, to men, anthropoids, which is an interesting use. Why plural? Because they could say, hey, they, they glorified God that this man, this Jesus, had been given authority. But that's not what they say. They say that to these men. Now think back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's not that long ago. It's just a couple pages. I know it's like three months, but a couple pages. When, when we got to the Lord's Prayer, what did I say? Like I said, look, a lot of these lines were actually in ancient prayers except for one line. What was that line? Anybody remember? Man, that stinks. What am I doing? Um, that, uh, that we would forgive others as we have been forgiven. That the idea that, that we would participate in forgiveness on a horizontal level was very foreign, uh, and still in some ways a bit foreign, to Jewish thinking. That if someone stole your donkey, there's retribution to be had. There's a, there's a certain level of, of fixing things to be had. But that forgiveness was between them and God. That we don't participate in forgiveness. Only God does. And I think Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is actually inviting people in, which is why the one thing that I think he inserts, he then talks about right after the prayer, is this, this practice, this, this um, participating in God's forgiving work into the world. That, that there's an invitation that we would be a part of that. And so the Son of Man has come not to seek vengeance, but actually to seek forgiveness, and then he has authority to do so, and then invites his people with the same authority into doing the same thing. That he has given such authority to men, which he had just taught on the last time he was in Capernaum, and invites his people into pronouncing forgiveness to, 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 to people who don't fit into the community, who are outsiders to worship. And Jesus pronounces right standing with God, brings him in. And we know now we participate as well in, in the, the work of forgiveness and are able to engage in God's redemptive work and forgiveness in the world by acting counterculturally to the, to the work of seeking vengeance and seeking justice all the time and actually work in the world of forgiveness. That's what the text is about. So it's great that Jesus healed the paralytic, and he had power to do so. Actually, I would argue, when we deal with the, like, the power of healings, in the ancient world, none of those things would shock them. You, you read about all sorts of different historical figures that did all sorts of different healings. That's not the goal that Matthew's after. We, in our modern sense, are like, wow, look, he healed people. That must prove that he's God. That's not, that's not how they would function at all. But the fact that he has authority to forgive people and to stand there and do so. So let's just talk through a, a few quick applications. Uh, the first one's a smaller one and then two larger ones. Uh, the first is that sometimes, this is going back to the start of the story, sometimes it's someone else's faith that helps us be in the presence of Jesus. Um, I love the communal piece of the story. We don't know the attitude of the man at all. We don't know whether he was reluctant that his friends were bringing him. If he's paralytic, he can't always put up a fight. Um, he, reluctant that they might be doing this. Uh, we don't know if he's frustrated or hopeful. We don't know if he's embarrassed by the moment. We actually have no clue of his disposition at all. We are given almost nothing other than the fact he can't use his legs. We just don't know. 
But we do know something about his friends. And they sought to bring their friend into the presence of Jesus and see what Jesus might do with it. And the faith of their friends brought change into this man's life. And I would argue, once again, this is the beauty of community. Because we all, we all go through seasons where we feel far from Jesus. We all go through times of darkness, sin, of struggle, and of wandering. And it's the Holy Spirit working through friends and acquaintances to bring us back into the presence of Jesus. To bring us back, and vice versa. That we get to serve in that work as well. That if we have friends that are experiencing the dark night of the soul or experiencing times of just walking in brokenness, that we would be agents to go, let's, let's get in front of Jesus and see what he would do. And that we participate in that work as a community. And the next is that Jesus is the one with ultimate authority. Um, Jesus doesn't pull any punches in this moment. It's, it's pretty straightforward where people are so awestruck. And, and the disciples were awestruck last week in this boat of this guy who can calm the storms in a moment out of authority. And Jesus is sitting here in that same authority going, yes, you, you know that place where heaven and earth meet down in Jerusalem? You know that place that pronounces the forgiveness of sins? This very place, this temple, And Jesus isn't saying the temple is bad, just as much as he doesn't say the Torah is bad. But they were leading to a fulfillment in the story of who Jesus is. And the temple was this meeting place of heaven and earth, where God and humanity, where God's holiness and man's brokenness all met together, and where God was committed to forgiving and transforming a people in that moment. And Jesus asserts himself as basically declaring, I'm the new temple. I'm the new priest, and I stand in for the sacrifice. It's actually a fair chunk of the book of Hebrews. It's Jesus explaining that Jesus is doing that very thing. Jesus takes on that picture, that he is the one who represents God to us and us to God. He is the priest. He stands in the gap of those two things. He is the one. um, I skipped the second one. Um, And he's the one whose death and bloodshed would be the once and for all end of the sacrifices of the animals. He would bring the temple system to an end because his atonement was for all people from that point on, all of his people. He's standing there in authority saying, that's who I am. There's no vagueness around what Jesus is meant to do and to be when he stands there and says, your sins are forgiven. And they go crazy about him saying that because this is what he's saying. And so people are afraid of that sort of power, that he is the new temple in some ways. And then Jesus uses his authority for mercy, restoration, and inclusion. And that's the beauty of the story, too. We are postmodernists for most of us. Authority is like a swear word. Uh, It's the new A word, right? Uh, And we don't like it. Uh, And use of the word authority, we have visceral reactions to. Um, It's just the nature of of how we are. And as Americans, we we tend to. I mean, our country was founded by bucking authority. Uh, So um, it's it's just who we are as a people, too. So, um, But when authority is utilized for mercy and justice and restoration and inclusion, we can still stand there and go, that is right. That's why church abuses are the worst 
Because the very people who are supposed to be enacting healthy, good use of authority are not doing so. And Jesus does it. He says, my child, he's so sweet in this moment. My child, your sins are forgiven. And this faith of the friend, similar to the faith of the centurion, right? The centurion is not acting for himself. He's acting for his servant. And these friends are not acting for themselves. They're acting for others. And something about that, Jesus sees and goes, yes, I will do a work in and through you. And he openly makes a statement about his restoration to God, uh, restoration of this paralytic. And he also physically restores him in that moment. So he not only brings him back into the worshiping community, uh, or back to God, but he brings him back into the worshiping community by healing this man as well to showcase that Jesus' work is this new creation work. And people glorify God and celebrate. So they're afraid because Jesus is a new temple and all these sort of things. But then they see that wielded for mercy, and they love it. And that's what we get to participate in, too. Jesus is in the business of reconciling all things to himself, according to 2 Corinthians. And we get to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. Now he invites us into it. That according to the good news of Jesus, he is full of mercy and compassion. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And he invites others into his kingdom to trust in him as the king who would one day bring about a renewed world where earth and heaven are once again together in their fullness. And that's what we get to participate in. So let's go. That's the invitation. That's why we celebrate. Oh, Jesus gives us authority too. That's literally what he says as he leaves his disciples. Like, all authority on heaven and earth has given to me, so go. Like, now I am commissioning you. Like, I'm sending you out on my authority to go be authority into this world. Go make disciples. Go find the paralytics. Go invite all the people that no one expected to the party. Go uh, care for the neuro and physical uh, ability diverse people in this world. Go care for the elderly that uh, this society has currently dropped off. Go care for the unborn. Go care for minorities that might be treated harshly and unjustly by government systems. Go care for those things. Make sure you're involved in those things. And yes, invite everybody that 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 should be at the party uh, and and everybody that no one expected to be at the party. Go go do that work. And that we would be awestruck by God and celebrate that that's the kind of God we have. That's the response to the story.